Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a President's Day campaign duel. Former President Trump speaking out for the first time about Alexei Navalny's death. What's he hinting and what President Biden's campaign is touting amid dismal poll numbers? Iris Tao from the White House. Biden and other top Democrats urging the House to pass the $95 billion foreign aid package, while some Republicans, including Senator J.D. Vance, are opposed to the bill. Two officers and a first responder shot and killed in Minnesota. How the tragic events unfolded while responding to a domestic violence call. Christina Corona has the latest. House Republicans take the next step in their impeachment inquiry into the president. This week, Biden's brother will be on Capitol Hill to answer questions as the GOP probes large transfers of money within the Biden family. Melina Weiskup reports. Former President Trump calling a New York judge crooked. He's vowing to appeal the $355 million ruling in his civil fraud case. Arlene Richards has more on what's next. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. On President's Day, President Biden is using a new survey to go after Trump. But Trump's touting his lead in the polls as he continues to allege election interference from the Biden White House. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the White House. Quote, happy President's Day unless you're Donald Trump. That's what President Biden's campaign saying on Monday, citing a new survey done by a group of self-described presidential experts. The survey ranks Abraham Lincoln as the best president, Biden as the 14th best, and Trump as the worst ever in history. While Biden's campaign is using that to attack Trump, latest polling shows Trump continues to hold a slight advantage over Biden in a potential fall rematch. And poll aggregator 538 shows that Biden's approval rating, now less than 40 percent, is lower than his most recent seven predecessors at the same point in their presidencies. You know, we're leading Biden by so much. Trump over the weekend touting his lead in polls while decrying what he calls election interference in 2024. And all of these corrupt persecutions that they're doing are only happening because I am running for president and leading big in the polls. All this is as Russia continues to be in the news. And Trump on Monday for the first time publicly spoke out about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's sudden death in prison. But instead of blaming it on Putin like Biden and Nikki Haley did, Trump instead linked it to his personal legal situation, saying it had made him more aware of what's happening in this country and that, quote, grossly unfair courtroom decisions are destroying America. Biden, meanwhile, says he's weighing more sanctions on Russia over Navalny's death. We already have sanctions moving and we're considering additional sanctions, yes. And President Biden set to campaign in California this week, while Trump is set to campaign in South Carolina, where he's leading Nikki Haley by double digits ahead of the Saturday GOP primary. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. From Russia to Spain to the United Kingdom, reactions pouring in over the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His widow sharing a defiant message as the world pays tribute to Navalny's legacy. In a video on Alexei Navalny's YouTube channel, 
the widow of the Russian opposition leader, vowed to continue her husband's legacy. She directed her blame towards President Vladimir Putin, saying he's killed the father of her children. She also added that she has evidence on how Navalny died and who's behind it. We know exactly why Putin killed Alexei three days ago. We will tell you about it soon. We will definitely find out who exactly and how exactly this crime was carried out. We will name names and show faces. On Monday, Yulia Navalnaya attended a meeting in Brussels with European Union foreign ministers. Aside from holding Russia accountable for its invasion of Ukraine, member nations have called for new sanctions on Moscow over the death of Navalny. But it was mainly a way of giving a face and to give an image to the Russian opposition and to the fight for Russian people. And that's why Putin removed him from freedom as a dangerous symbol. The timing of Navalny's death comes just a month before a presidential election that's set to give Putin another six years in power. Navalny's mother was seen visiting the local investigative committee office, where she's working to arrange for the return of her son's body. Russian police broke up tributes to the late activist over the weekend. In St. Petersburg, people lined up to lay flowers for Navalny during a memorial service. Authorities stepped in to throw away flowers, but people kept bringing more. Human rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been arrested so far in over 30 Russian cities. And protests continue to unfold elsewhere around the world, like this one in Spain. And this one in London. The Kremlin has denied any involvement in Navalny's death. Prison officials told Navalny's mother he died from sudden death syndrome, a term that can involve a wide range of scenarios, resulting in unforeseen sudden death. Navalny died at the age of 47. He was serving a three-decade prison sentence on extremism and fraud charges he denied. Authorities said he passed away after falling unconscious on a walk. The whereabouts of his remains are still unknown. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that House Republicans pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. The package includes $60 billion for Ukraine. Republican Senator J.D. Vance is among those opposed to the bill. Here's his explanation at the Munich Security Conference. I mean, look, the, the reason is very simple. Number one, I don't think spending another $61 billion of American money actually helps the Ukrainians that much because, again, our munition supplies are fundamentally depleted. There's only so much that we can do with additional dollars. That's number one. Uh, number two, I think that we have to wake up to the reality, and the reality is this is going to end in a negotiated settlement of some, some type. I think American policy and American diplomacy should be trying to bring that about as quickly as possible. Vance says European nations need to step up and do more for their own defense if they truly consider Russia a threat. He says that's because the U.S. is pivoting its focus to East Asia and many critical weapons are in short supply. Vance also says the war in Ukraine lacks a clear endpoint and the aid wouldn't fundamentally change the reality on the battlefield. The senator estimates there's a 50-50 chance that the foreign aid bill will fail in the House. House Speaker Mike Johnson and others in the GOP have issues with the bill. Many said the absence of provisions for border security. Johnson has said he won't be rushed into approving the package. 
The House is currently in recess. Biden spoke with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend, linking Ukraine's withdrawal from a key city to Congress's inability to act. The White House says the withdrawal was forced by ammunition having to be rationed. Two police officers and a first responder were shot and killed in Minnesota while responding to a domestic violence call. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the tragic story. At approximately 1.50 a.m. Sunday, the Burnsville Police Department was called to a residence in the 12,600 block of 33rd Avenue South on a report of domestic violence. A man was reported to be armed and barricaded with family members in the home. We later learned uh, that there were seven young children in the home, uh, ranging from ages 2 to 15. When officers got to the scene, the individual was barricaded, and they spent quite a bit of time uh, negotiating with this individual who was barricaded in the home. At one point during that barricaded situation, the, the subject uh, opened fire on the officers in the home, and officers Elmstrad, Rugi, and Finseth from the fire department, uh, Mr. Finseth, were killed by the gunman during the response. Another officer, Adam Medlicott, was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The alleged shooter was reported dead around 8 a.m. Authorities say the children and family members were able to escape from the home later that morning. Today, three members of our team made the ultimate sacrifice for this community. They are heroes. Hundreds of people gathered in front of Burnsville City Hall in Minnesota Sunday evening for a candlelit vigil to remember the victims of the shooting. The shooting claimed the lives of officers Paul Elmstrand, 27, who was with the department for six years, Matthew Ruge, 27, who was with the police department for three years, and Adam Finseth, 40, who served as a firefighter and paramedic for five years. But what I want to say is to all of our officers out there, to all of our paramedics, our fire department, thank you for what you do for our community. Thank you. We know that right now is a time to grieve. The medical office has not yet released the official identification of the suspect. Christina Corona, NTD News. Evacuation alerts, road closures and flood warnings are in effect in Southern California as another major winter storm brings additional rainfall to the region. And the rain continues, uh, looking at another additional period of heavy rain through today across portions of Southern California, where an additional amount of one to maybe as high as three inches of rainfall could occur through today. And that could uh, uh, result in additional flash flooding, potentially landslides, and um, in and around Southern California. The storm is expected to bring two to five inches of rain along the coastal areas and valleys and four to eight inches across south and southwest facing mountain slopes and foothills. Ventura County has recorded the highest rainfall so far, exceeding three inches. An evacuation warning was issued in the Santa Monica Mountains due to possible mudslides. The Sepulveda Basin is also closed due to flooding. A flood watch will be in effect in most of Los Angeles County through Wednesday morning. President Biden's brother will be on Capitol Hill later this week for a closed-door interview. It will be key testimony for House Republicans as they take their next step in a months-long investigation probing large money transfers within the Biden family. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. 
Two key testimonies are taking place behind closed doors on Capitol Hill later this month as Republicans continue their months-long impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The first is the president's brother, James Biden. He'll be answering questions about a money trail within the Biden family that Republicans claim is ultimately sourced from foreign countries in part of a larger bribery scheme. Lawmakers on the Oversight Committee will likely focus in on a $40,000 check and a $200,000 check that James Biden paid to his brother in 2017 and 2018. They were listed as loans, but the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer questions that since the money came the same day that James Biden received money from one of his business interests, now bankrupt AmeriCorps. In addition to speaking with the president's family members, lawmakers on the Oversight Committee have also sought testimony from several former Biden family business associates. For example, Tony Bobolinsky and his testimony before the Oversight Committee last week brought up the issue of a Chinese energy company, the boss of which President Biden previously met with in 2017. Bobolinsky told lawmakers bluntly his family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who were seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Although President Biden has repeatedly denied these allegations, saying he has not spoken with his family members about their business endeavors. And next week, the president's son, Hunter Biden, has finally agreed to meet behind closed doors with the Oversight Committee after defying the first subpoena that they sent him, as well as making a surprise visit to Capitol Hill when they were getting ready to hold him in contempt of Congress. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Former President Trump rails against the New York judge who ordered him to pay $355 million in his civil fraud case. Trump called the decision lawless and vowed to appeal. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards finds out more about the appeal process and how the ruling could impact other New York businesses. I'm thrilled to be back. Former President Trump has a few choice words for the New York judge who ordered him to pay $355 million. The decision yesterday in New York, you may have read about it. Crooked judge, crooked judge. He's a crooked judge. He told a crowd of Michigan supporters the current legal system is a threat to democracy. By a radical left-wing judge was a lawless and unconstitutional atrocity that sets fire to our laws like no one has ever seen in this country before. That happens in banana republics. It doesn't happen in this country. Trump has vowed to appeal the decision. Legal expert John Malcolm told NTD Good Morning what we can expect. Well, he's going to have to put up quite a bit of money if he appeals. He's going to have to put up a surety bond uh, of basically, you know, deposit the money in escrow into uh, the bank. He's a billionaire, so he can do it, uh, but it's not going to be easy for him to do it. And that is on top of nearly $90 million that's already been awarded to a woman named Jean Carroll. Malcolm said Trump has several grounds to appeal. So the law under which he was uh, sued uh, is designed for, you know, consumer protection uh, against fraud. Uh, it's usually not designed for very sophisticated banks. He's going to argue, as you said in your lead-in, there was no victim here. The banks were completely paid off on time with the interest that they had demanded in their loans. He said Trump will also argue that the judge was biased against him. Trump's principal lawyer, Chris Keis, told Newsweek he plans to challenge the judge's definition of fraud. 
He said the case raises serious legal and constitutional questions regarding fraud claims findings without any actual fraud. Criminal defense attorney David Gelman told NTD Today the ruling sends a message to other New York businesses. And what, it's what it has done it is making businesses or is going to make businesses not only think, oh, wait a minute, I'm not going to be doing business in the state of New York anymore, or at least in New York City, but if they already are doing business, they're probably going to leave. Gelman said businesses don't want to face millions of dollars in fines just for making a mistake. But Governor Kathy Hochul says New York businesses have nothing to worry about. In an interview with the podcast Cats Roundtable, Hochul said the fraud case against Trump was, quote, an extraordinary, unusual circumstance. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Coming up, what does the New York civil fraud verdict mean for the Trump Organization and other companies operating in the state? Our guest says New York has created a hostile environment for businesses. Hear his reactions to the court ruling. Israeli forces reveal alarming discoveries at Al Nasser Hospital in Gaza, and an Israeli cabinet minister sets a deadline for hostages to be released before a ground offensive is launched in Rafah. Jason Perry reports. And Virginians celebrate President's Day with their annual birthday parade for the father of the nation. Our D.C. correspondent Luis Eduardo Martinez takes us there after the break. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Joining us now to discuss the ruling in Trump's New York civil fraud case, we have Mark Miller, senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. Mark Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be back. Thank you, Tiffany. Now, Trump and his sons are barred from doing business in New York for three years. Now, how damaging is this to Trump? What does it mean for his business? This is going to be damaging for President Trump on any number of fronts. You know, we all know New York City has been his headquarters for decades. Uh, this is going to affect his ability to do business in the city. Uh, it's going to affect the way people do business with him, the way entities treat him and, and treat Trump organization and, of course, treat his sons. So I don't think there's any way to downplay how negative this is for President Trump and why it does seem uh, entirely logical and almost uh, something he can't avoid but to appeal. Now, Trump and his businesses are also barred from applying for loans from banks which are registered with or chartered with New York State. Now, most U.S. banks are registered or have charters with New York. So what does that mean for Trump? Well, for any organization like Trump Organization, uh, and, you know, you can divorce it from President Trump. We all know that much of this case is about President Trump himself. But just for any big business, the, the ability to have their... Their need for financing is dramatic. And if someone's going to curtail their ability to get their financing for a large organization like Trump Organization, it's going to uh, negatively impact them. He's going to have to go to you know, uh, you know, banks outside of that are not chartered in New York, perhaps international banks or perhaps private equity firms. The rates he's going to be offered are probably not as good as he could get if he were to stay in his hometown. Uh, so there's really no way to downplay how bad this is for President Trump. Now, on the business side, New York's Governor Kathy Hochul is trying to quell the fears of businesses following Trump's ruling. But Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary dismissed her efforts, saying, quote, he would never invest in New York now, adding he's not the only one. Several other businesses are the same. Now, what message is this ruling sending to the business community? Could we see businesses leaving New York? 
Well, I think, Tiffany, we're already seeing businesses leave New York, not just because of this verdict, but because of the hostile environment for businesses that has been in place in New York for the last number of years. Of course, we've seen people just steadily flowing to Sunbelt states, in part because of the high tax environment. So a decision like this, the attorney general's decision to really make this a, a political attack on President Trump sends a message that if you get sideways with the attorney general in New York, you could uh, find yourself uh, underneath her, uh, you know, facing attack from her, which, may, you know, which many of the people who look at this case, like Kevin O'Leary, say that, that what President Trump and his organization were doing were no different than what uh, banks and businesses do all the time. In fact, the Deutsche Bank officials who testified in this case said it was not unusual for valuations to be uh, reduced by the bank in comparison to what the businesses told them the valuation should be. So here, I think the message is really bad for business coming to New York. Now, Trump has been ordered to pay about $450 million. That's including interest. Now, the New York Times did an investigation and says that that sum threatens to wipe out a stockpile of cash, stocks, and bonds that Trump has amassed since leaving the White House. Now, Trump has said he will appeal, but will he have to pay? Yes, to take the appeal in New York and in most states, you would have to post a bond or actually deposit the money that the judgment is in the amount of, with the interest, as you said, so about $450 million in, the, in a bank, in a trust account with the courthouse, and so or with the clerk of court. So he's going to have to come up with that money one way or the other. Perhaps uh, somebody will, you know, post the bond for him, or perhaps he'll break it up into, min uh, you know, bonds of smaller amounts that total that 450 give or take, million dollars. It's not going to be easy. And when you're running for president, as former President Trump is doing, uh, the last thing he needs is to also be trying to move his finances around so dramatically in order to uh, appeal this case that really he has no choice but to appeal. To your prompt. To your point, Trump also has other legal cases, and Bloomberg was reporting that he's running out of money to pay all of those as well, never mind his campaign spending. Mark Miller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. Israel Defense Forces have released startling findings from their recent operations at Al Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, an Israeli cabinet minister has given a potential start date for Israel's ground offensive into the final stronghold of Hamas. NTD's Jason Perry has the war update. Israel Defense Forces say they've detained hundreds of suspected terrorists at Al Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. On Sunday, the IDF said some of the suspected terrorists were pretending to be medical staff. The IDF also reported finding a large quantity of weapons and explosives at the hospital. This may not have been too surprising for the Israeli military, as their intelligence suggests that over 85% of hospitals in the Gaza Strip have been used for terrorist activity. But some may have been surprised by this latest discovery inside the Al Nasser Hospital's pharmacy. Here in the pharmacy, we found medicines that were seemingly supposed to go to the hostages with labels and the name of the hostage. You can see pictures here. The pictures have been cut. Some of the inscriptions still remain. It can be seen that none of the medication was used. And in another location at the hospital, the IDF found containers of medicine specifically for the hostages, with the hostages' names written on the boxes. 
This was apparently part of a shipment of medicine after an agreement was reached between Qatar, France, Israel and Hamas to allow the delivery of medication to the hostages. This woman was pregnant when her husband was believed to be taken hostage on October 7th. She recently had her baby without him. I didn't want to get to this moment. I really hoped our baby would wait until the last moment. I had some hope that maybe Delev will return and could be with me in that situation, but it didn't happen. Israel has repeatedly said that only through military pressure will Hamas release the hostages. And the Israeli military has their eyes set on one final city they believe to be the last stronghold of Hamas terrorists, Rafah, which lies on the Egyptian border. Gaza residents are worried about the potential Israeli ground offensive. There are fears that a catastrophe will happen in case of an Israeli ground offensive. The crowds are huge. When they strike, they will hit people. Israeli cabinet minister Benny Gantz on Sunday said if the hostages aren't returned, the Israeli ground offensive into Rafah will begin by Ramadan. The Islamic month of fasting will begin in about three weeks. Jason Perry, NTD News. Elsewhere in Europe, the European Union is investigating TikTok. The EU industry chief posted on X that they suspect TikTok is breaching transparency agreements and not upholding obligations to protect minors. Key concerns include addictive design and the algorithm funneling viewers to more extreme content, as well as potentially inadequate age verification and default privacy settings. TikTok's parent company could face fines of up to 6% of global revenue if found guilty of breaching EU rules. Back in the U.S., Virginians take special pride in commemorating George Washington's birthday for President's Day. NTD's Luis Ordardo Martinez has more on the tribute to the father of the nation. George Washington, Alexandria's original living legend. This is a theme of this year's George Washington's birthday parade here in Alexandria, Virginia. Washington wasn't born in this historic city, but according to locals, it's his adopted hometown. This is for George Washington's birthday. Yeah, that's the whole point of this parade. It's nice to come for a celebration. This is a happy thing. It's nice to have a happy thing after COVID, right? We spoke with the man of the hour himself to hear his reactions to the festivities. Who would have known that when I helped lay out the city as a young surveyor in 1749, that 275 years later it would be prospering as it has. And so I'm elated about that as well. Alexandria is also marking its 275th anniversary. Local members of historical societies made sure to also celebrate their city, which is only 17 years younger than the first president himself. Some dressed up in the Virginia Continental uniform of the Revolutionary War. I'm here representing the Sons of the American Revolution. It helps celebrate the spirit of the 250th anniversary as well as uh, support our local community in Alexandria. According to the George Washington Celebration Committee, the parade offers the public an event that caters to all not just the history lovers. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of uh, Civil War, American Revolution people, Scottish people, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, World War One, World War Two, jazz bands, regular bands, fife and drum bands, you name it. This, this uh, parade has got everything. The parade boasts to be the largest and oldest of its kind. This year's iteration is its 101st. Reporting from Alexandria, Virginia, Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News.
Coming up, presidential candidates trying to appeal to Gen Z voters this election season. Our guest, a Gen Zer who's running for Congress, tells us what his generation cares about. And San Francisco appoints a new member to the city's election commission who isn't legally allowed to vote herself. Jason Blair has more on the move that's gaining national attention after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Recent polling showed former President Trump holding a slight advantage over President Biden in a potential rematch, while Biden's approval rating is currently below 40 percent. At the same time, Trump for the first time spoke out about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's sudden death in prison. Trump linked Navalny's death to his own legal situation. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that the House pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. Some Republicans, including Senator J.D. Vance, are opposed to aid for Ukraine because they say the war has no clear end point. Two police officers and a first responder were shot and killed in Burnsville, Minnesota, while responding to a domestic violence call. Police say a man opened fire while he was barricaded with family members in the home. The alleged shooter was later reported dead and the family members were able to escape. An atmospheric river is bringing heavy rains to Southern California. The coastal areas could see two to five inches of rain. Evacuation alerts, road closures and flood warnings are in effect for several counties. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is warning the GOP not to ignore Gen Z voters. And President Biden's campaign recently joined TikTok in an effort to appeal to young voters. So how important are Gen Zers in politics and what do they care about? Joining us now is Kenny Shi, lead insider of the admissions lawsuit against affirmation action at Harvard University and author of An Inconvenient Minority. As a Gen Zer himself, she is running for Congress in North Carolina's 13th district. Kenny Shi, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. To begin, we're seeing candidates, presidential candidates like Nikki Haley, saying that it would be a mistake of the GOP to ignore Gen Z voters. Now, how important is the Gen Z vote? Well, I think Nikki Haley is right about winning the Gen Z vote. The problem is that candidates like Nikki Haley don't seem to have much appeal to Gen Z people. Why is that? We're not just going to vote for somebody who's young. We're going to vote for somebody who has an inspirational mentality, who has an inspirational drive, ambition, who has solutions that can really help and target young people. The Republican Party has always unfortunately been the party of old people. But candidates like Donald Trump are able to really cut through that clutter by being very blunt, by being very straightforward. That's actually the way that Gen Z talks these days. Look at us tweeting. We're very blunt. We're very straightforward. We get to the point. We need truth. We don't want jargon and we don't want people who roll around uh, their words. We want people who tell the truth. Now, speaking of Trump, we did see Trump just launch his new sneaker line, and he also made a surprise appearance at SneakerCon. President Biden is now on TikTok. Do you think these tactics will actually succeed at appealing to younger voters? And who's doing the best job at engaging the young voters? They might. You know, I mean, I'm not going to argue necessarily with some of the best political consultants in the world. Trump and Biden both do. 
Um, and I'm not going to suddenly call Trump Michael Jordan now because he's selling $300 sneakers with his name. But certainly, you know, in swing states, reaching Gen Z voters, you want to be on their platforms. You want to be on Instagram. You want to be on TikTok, even though, you know, the Chinese own it. Even as you bash TikTok, you should be on TikTok. So uh, I'm glad that the Trump campaign and, you know, even the Biden campaign is using that. Um, but we'll see if they can get past their deficiencies um, in terms of their age and in terms of whether voters like me, who are smart, who are Gen Z, really believe they're telling the truth. Now, Gen Z has only seen three presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden, that they could vote for. Now, according to Axios, many Gen Zers are choosing not to vote this year because they want younger candidates who reflect their values and views. Now, as a Gen Zer, what needs to be done to encourage them to come out and vote? We have to reach Gen Z people with Gen Z candidates. That's why I'm running in North Carolina's 13 congressional district, one of the few truly interesting districts in the nation where an incumbent is not running again. Uh, me as a Republican, I get to reflect a, a party that is quickly moving forward towards truth. I don't care about diversity. I don't care that I'm the first Asian American candidate. I care that I'm telling the truth. And for my advocacy, my nonprofit, Color Us United here, where we advocate against critical race theory and DEI, for my uh, ambition, for my work with the Harvard and UNC admissions case, I think that voters old and young will adhere to my message, will adhere to my message of treating people on the basis of merit, not skin color. And I think that that message is going to work here in North Carolina. Now, expanding on your congressional run, some might point to older candidates and their years of experience as a plus. What is your message to the skeptics out there? Do you want the same old Congress or do you want Congress to change? We have a Congress right now that cannot pass an immigration bill. We have a Congress right now that does not, how to, that does not know how to negotiate with the other side. Everything that Gen Zers and millennials like me that were taught in high school which is learning how to talk to the other side, learning how to make friends who have different opinions. That is all not reflected in our current Congress that's currently made up of people 65 and older. Now, in terms of the presidential election, Trump has been seen with Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek has done a pretty good job at targeting the younger people. If he does become Trump's vice president, do you see that as coalescing the younger voters to come out and vote? Would that help Trump? I think I know I personally know Vivek Ramaswamy. He's a great guy. Uh, I think that he has good character and we need to elect good character candidates. You know, Vivek was obviously one of the top debaters in his high school. We need to elect people who are quick, who are quick witted. He is very quick witted. Um, and so is Trump. So Gen Z people are looking for people who are authentic, who are quick witted, who tell the truth. That's how Vivek ran his uh, first campaign and it got him a lot of attention. I think he has a political future. And I think that this is the me, Vivek, we are the rising generation of, of future conservative candidates that are going to protect our nation. Kenishi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A non-citizen is now serving as an elections commissioner in San Francisco, a role that helps create policy for the city's elections department. It's believed to be the first time the position is held by someone who isn't legally allowed to vote. NTD's Jason Blair reports. 
San Francisco appointed the first non-citizen to the city's elections commission. The newest member of the seven-person body, Kelly Wong, told KQED, quote, I've seen how language and cultural barriers prevent immigrants with limited English proficiency from fully exercising their right to vote. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors unanimously voted to appoint Wong. She was sworn in on Wednesday by the Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin. Peskin posted on X, quote, I'm very impressed by Kelly Wong's commitment to enfranchising people who rarely vote to educating people about the voting process. Kelly Wong is an immigrant from Hong Kong. In addition to English, she is fluent in the Cantonese and Mandarin dialects of Chinese. She told KQED one of her priorities is to make sure election materials are translated so native speakers can understand them. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Chinese is the second most spoken language in San Francisco, with many speaking the Cantonese dialect. In San Francisco, non-citizens aren't completely banned from voting in elections. Since 2016, non-citizen parents are allowed to vote in school board elections if they have a child enrolled in the school district. Jason Blair, NTD News. Still to come, millions are down in the dumps from seasonal affective disorder. One psychiatrist tells you what you should not do if you're feeling depressed. And in college hoops, the NCAA releases their bracket preview nearly a month before the tournament even starts. Dave Martin shares his opinion on it when we come back. Welcome back, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Depression every winter, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, plagues millions across the world. A prominent psychiatrist explains how not to treat it. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Every winter, millions of people experience SAD, or seasonal affective disorder, a type of depression that involves sadness, reduced energy, and feelings of hopelessness. Depression is a psychological and spiritual phenomena. It is not caused by biochemical imbalances in the brain, which is an advertising gimmick by the drug company. Psychiatrist Peter Bregan is the author of Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. He believes people should not take medication to treat depression because he believes depression is not an illness. Bregan says it's never been proven that depression is caused by biochemical imbalances in the brain, despite the best efforts of the pharmaceutical companies. My colleagues in psychiatry want to call it a disease so then we can charge high prices, uh, higher than the uh, therapists generally do, our doctors, and we can prescribe drugs which is by far the best way to make money as a psychiatrist. The media participates in this because they get a ton of advertising from the pharmaceutical industry. Bregan says he used to talk about this on TV shows like Oprah, 60 Minutes, and Larry King Live. But ever since the media started doing direct-to-consumer drug advertising, they stopped having him on. Instead of taking medication, Bregan recommends exercise, healthy eating, and seeing a good therapist. A therapist you can really connect with, one you could consider your friend. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss. Let's start in the NBA, where last night's All-Star Game saw a record number of points, yet also plenty of criticism. What was that about? Well, there wasn't much intensity in the game, you know, especially on defense, hence all the points. 
Uh, it makes for a boring game for fans to watch. I mean, if the players aren't into it, of course the fans aren't going to be either. And it didn't seem like Commissioner Adam Silver was too impressed afterwards when he congratulated the Eastern Conference for, quote, scoring the most points. Now, others in sports media like Bob Ryan and David Aldridge, they weighed in on X or Twitter as well, with Ryan calling it, quote, a waste of time, and Aldridge wondering why, quote, even minimal defensive effort is beyond this generation of all-stars. Now, this is really the same issue the NFL, the NHL, and even somewhat Major League Baseball has and for their all-star games. No one really wants to get injured in a meaningless exhibition, so no one's really going to go all out in those games. But it wasn't always like that. I mean, it used to be a very competitive game, so I think they're going to have to put incentives out there for the players if they want a better all-star game experience really going forward, for the fans anyway. Hmm. Well, now shifting gears to the college game, March Madness doesn't start for another month, yet the tournament committee has already released their bracket preview, ranking the top 16 teams. Why are they doing this now? I think it's to get us, as in the media, talking about it. You know, not only, now they do this already for college football, but there's already plenty of interest in that. I mean, there's only four teams make those playoffs out of like 120, so it's very exclusive. So it does end up being a bit of a talking point for us. There's still like a month to go, like you said, and there were really no surprises there. I mean, they had Purdue as number one overall with UConn number two. The AP poll had them reversed with UConn number one, Purdue number two, although after UConn crushed Marquette on Saturday, that could change. So there really wasn't much difference there. Now, this will be the lone bracket reveal in like college football, which has like seven of them. In any case, there'll be plenty of excitement when the real March Madness starts, but that's not announced for like another month. Well, now shifting gears to tennis, Rafael Nadal had planned to resume playing this week at the Qatar Open, but had to pull out. When is he planning to resume playing? You know, it looks like early March. You know, he has an exhibition planned against second-ranked Carlos Alcaraz, and then he's scheduled to play at an event in Indian Wells later in March, uh, later that month. I hope he can, but he's been out for quite a while now. I mean, he originally injured his hip back in January of 2023 at the Australian Open. Missed the rest of the calendar year, came back last month only to re-injure his hip again, but in a different part of it. So he missed the Australian Open already. I'm sure the plan is to get him ready for his event, the French Open that he's won 14 times. That starts in May. And he's hinted this will be his last year on tour. I mean, he turns 38 this spring. I think at this point, fans are just hoping that he has one last hurrah. You know, unlike with Roger Federer, who had this knee injury, he tried to come back repeatedly over the last year and a half of his career. It just didn't happen. But it's starting to have that same kind of feel, though. Over in boxing news, it appears the great Manny Pacquiao won't compete in this summer's Olympics as the IOC upheld their age limits on boxing. Hadn't he already announced his retirement? Yeah, like two and a half years ago, too. Of course, pretty much every great boxer thinks they still have one good match in them left. Uh, I'll grant, though, it's not 100% clear that actually he was actively trying to compete in the games, but it was Philippine officials who had sought a ruling on this. We don't really know for sure. In any case, he's now 45 years old, and the Olympics doesn't allow anyone over the age of 40 into boxing. It's actually the only Olympic sport that has an age limit. Of course, it's the most dangerous sport also. Now, ironically, the age limit used to be 34 until 2013 when they raised it to 40, which most people believed was to allow both Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather into the 2016 games, although it didn't work. But they were the biggest names in boxing at the time. Personally, I think this is for the best. I mean, not only for injury purposes, most remember him as winning 12 world titles across a record eight different weight classes. So he's already had a great career. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff.
Now, Team USA is ready to compete in the Paris Olympics, but the athletes will actually be staying in a small town north of the city. Paris officials have set up a training facility for the American delegation far from the hustle and bustle of the French capital. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Some 1,200 athletes and staff will use the Athletica Training Center, about 10 miles north of Paris. The state-of-the-art facility in the town of Uben is near the athletes' village. Um, and it's really close to the athletes' village, so it's really it's convenient for our athletes to go back and forth. Um, and it's in a really nice and quiet neighborhood too, which is great for us because we like to get out of the hustle and bustle and make sure our athletes have no distractions. On top of the Athletica Center, Team USA will be able to use a close-by swimming pool and stadium. The whole facility covers about 35 acres. The Athletica Center costs nearly $30 million to renovate. The accommodations feature automatic massage tables, cryotherapy units, physiotherapy rooms, and about 100 bedrooms. We take a lot of pride in making sure that everything's done the way that we want it done. And even down to the little details, like our, our kitchen staff came here and worked with them with the specifications on their kitchen build-out to make sure it had what we need. Security is always a priority when it comes to the U.S. delegation. But Ricky Harris says he believes Team USA will be safe in Uben. We're obviously the, the most prominent and visible uh, delegation, so we always take security very seriously. Um, but yeah, Paris and France are more safe than most American cities, so I think for us um, this is pretty standard. Harris adds that the French hosts have been welcoming and attentive to their needs. Fortunately, we have uh, the cooperation of, of the Paris officials, the French officials, to make sure that we have all the support we need. And the U.S. Embassy has been fantastic out here. They've been excellent partners in making sure that, um, that our athletes and our delegation will feel safe and secure here. Athletes will compete at the Paris Olympics from July 26th to August 11th. The Paralympics will begin August 28th and conclude September 8th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.